Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right, so glad we're worshiping together here at Garfield Memorial Church. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Chip Freed. I have the privilege of serving as lead teaching pastor here amongst an amazing uh, group of people who seek to strive to bring the Word of God out uh, to as wide a circle as we can be. That's our mission, widening the circle. And uh, we're entering a new teaching series today, a four-week teaching series called Planted. And our tagline for this scripture, as you can see, is something that Paul said to the Corinthian church They were having all these debates over who was the greatest. Sounds familiar, right? The disciples did that in the upper room. Uh, We tend to do that all the time. And they were were beginning to uh, show partiality and judge one another. And Paul tried to put things in perspective. And he, he talked about himself. He said, Paul planted, I planted seeds in your midst. Apollos, now not the sun god, but Apollos was a very common Greek name. So a pastor, Paul would plant church, he'd move on, and a local pastor, a worship leader named Apollos, Paul planted the seeds, the Apollos watered the seeds, right, teaching, study, and reading from the word, and what? God gave the growth. That don't forget that God gives first, and we get to be tied for second with everyone else. And so we've been thinking about, we're, we're talking about spirit of preparation. If you were with me last week, I believe God has some amazing plans for Garfield Memorial Church, not to make us some great church or anything, but just important work for us to do. I named it last week, the work of reconciliation. Our Vision 2020 team is dealing with that, that as right now and beyond the other side of what's happening in 2020 for this entire decade, from 2020 to 2030, and so we're in a spirit of preparation like, like an athlete in training before the Olympics, we're, we're, we're thinking about that. We spent 12 weeks talking about putting on your spiritual PPE to resist the schemes of the devil. And if you don't believe in the devil, you've not been paying attention to 2020, okay? And now we're talking about planted. What are those seeds? What are those things that need to be planted in our life? This comes from Lifeway Discipleship Resources. If you remember Daniel M., he's an amazing young voice in the church. Uh, He preached for us last April, uh, April in 2019, after Easter for our Baptism Sunday. He's now pastoring a church in Edmonton, uh, Canada, and he came in with us in Faith on Friday. And he was reminding me about when he was with Lifeway Resources, they did this major study about what's a disciple, right? Our call is to go and to make disciples. Our call is for us to be disciples. What is a disciple? What does that look like? And they began to study what are what they called the inputs, those things that we put in to our, our spirits, to our life of faith that produce and yield the harvest, the greatest output in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there were 
20, 30 things that came up, but there were four that were so far and away the top four that it paled in comparison to five and following. Four things that they saw, people that didn't just have limp-along lives, but had lives that were energized and, and electrified by the Holy Spirit, living as healthy, joyful, effective disciples of Jesus Christ, that they had these four major inputs, four seeds that were planted, that yielded output. So we're going to preach, Pastor Scott and I, for these four weeks on these four major inputs. And we don't want you to just hear about this. It's like if Jesus preached a Sermon on the Mount, the greatest teaching, I think, that's ever been given, uh, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was like, knock you out, lay you out teaching, but Jesus at the end of it said, if you just hear this, you don't get it. He said, those of you who hear these words of mine, Matthew 7, and put them into practice will have a sturdy foundation that will go the distance. So when you hear us preaching, seek to think about what are ways you can put this into deeper practice in your life. Here's input number one, and we're not, we're not ranking them. These are the four things that you're going to listen, four seeds to plant. First, regular worship. Regular worship. Now, when you hear that, you're going to think of, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to go to church, supposed to go to Sunday school. I'm going to make the case that I don't think we know what worship even is for the most part, in the church. And don't feel convicted, because as I uh, preach, well, do feel convicted, sorry, but don't feel convicted alone, because as I began to reflect on this, I realized how easily I can slip outside of this and turn worship just into a routine or a duty, and that's not what it is. So I'm going to read to you Psalm 95. This is called uh, uh, the Venite, and in Latin what that meant, the O come. And scholars say that this was the psalm, and the psalm was a songbook in the worship leadership handbook of Israel. It would have been Jesus' hymnal and prayer book. And it, in Psalm 95, they say, is the greatest uh, expression of what worship is. So let's lean up against these words, okay? Here's Psalm 95. Boy, that's a small font. Oh, I hope it's bigger for you online. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, exclamation point. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And in Hebrew, that G would be small g. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And the dry land, which his hands have formed, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. And then this kind of weird ending. I'm going to try to talk about if I can get there. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, this is when the Israelites were wandering for 40 years, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger, I swore they shall never enter my rest. What's Psalm 25 saying? First, what is Worship. What? What is it? 
right? I'm going to give you a working definition. So you can pull these back on demand. If you're taking notes, that's great. But it's going to be on the slides. Here's the definition that I see in this psalm that I want to share with you. Worship is an act of uh, ascribing ultimate value. Do you see that? Ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being. It's, it's placing value. The old English for worship was the word worth-ship, giving worth. It's giving ultimate value to something, and it could be something other than God. That's going to be the problem. We're putting ultimate value on something that suddenly energizes and engages our whole being. Like, I want to go back to that scripture just for a minute in Psalm 95 that we read, just the first two slides, and look at the O comes. It is saying to come to God with your mind, with your will, and with your emotions. It's everything. So if you haven't done all this, we may not have worshipped, right? Look at this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise, right? That's our emotions, Come and shout and weep and experience it. If you drop down to verse 6, it, 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 it says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. What's that? That's the language of submission. That's your will. So our emotions, weeping, uh, crying aloud, singing, but also bowing and kneeling. And then finally in verse 8 it says, Oh, that you would listen to his voice, Right? that you would hear him. Oh, I'm sorry, it's in verse 7, actually. That you would listen to his voice and, 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 and hear his words. That's reason. That's thinking. It's saying to come to God with all of that. Engage him with everything. So, watch. If you just come to worship and you go through the rituals and you go through the routines and you say the prayers and you sing the songs, but there's no electrifying joy in your inner being. That might not be worship. Or watch this. If you come to worship and you're shouting and you're, you're praising and you're falling out and people are putting blankets on you and, you know, everything else, and you go out and don't bow down in your life and don't change your behavior and don't let it affect how you live, how you talk, how you vote, how you treat other people, then I'm going to say that's not worship either. That worship is encompassing the whole being. It takes your emotions, it takes your mind, it takes thinking, and it takes submission. It has an impact. It leaves a mark in your life, and you go out there a changed person. I realized this. I found this out a few years ago. Um, I was uh, my very first church. I was appointed to a civil rights uh, group that we were doing work in the Lorain County of Ohio, and we were studying back in the early 90s injustices in lending practices, that lending institutions were being very selective who they gave money to, which was sometimes um, uh, oppressive to people of color or other folks in economic stratas, that there were preferences being paid and communities being overlooked so that they could not buy housing in certain neighborhoods, etc. And so the mayors of Lorraine and Illyria asked a task force, there was eight of us, to study this. And so we began meeting with the banks. And there was one lending institution, it was a little credit union, it wasn't one of the big names, and they, on all the assessments that were given to us of equitable lending, they passed all of it. Like when we held them up against anybody in the state of Ohio, they got 100% on the test. They were the most equitable lending institution 
in the state. And so I went, and I, I, was, I was assigned to this, uh, uh, this bank, and I was so appreciative. I went and met with the president, and he said to me, I said, how did you guys get to this place? He said it was a vice president of ours. Her name uh, was Sandra Heron. Sandra Heron, she's a vice president. He said she uh, put us to the carpet and asked some penetrating questions that helped us to change our lending practices. I met with Sandra. And I said to her, watch this now. And she didn't even know I was a pastor. And I said, she knew I was part of this task force. I said, Sandra, what led you to lead this to such equitable lending practices? You know what she said to me? Oh, it happened to me in worship. Wow. That's what she said. And I said, what? <laughs> like, I'm a pastor. Tell me about this. She said, was a member of a Lutheran church, not a big church in, in Lorain, Ohio. And she said, oh, you know, she said, well, I was there one Sunday, and we were talking about the priesthood of all believers. That's something that all Protestants believe, that Jesus is our priest, Jesus is our temple, Jesus is a sacrifice. So you don't need lead pastors, you don't need uh, pastors of disciples, you don't need us to lay hands on your head. You can lay hands on your own head. You can walk right into the presence of God. We all are priests, which means we all have accountability to grow in our faith and do God's work. And she said, I was thinking about the priesthood of all believers, and my pastor preached on showing no partiality. He did it from the book of James, and she shared me the passages. It's James chapter 2, verse 1, 8, and 9. And she said, I heard these words read and preached that said, Brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. So that, that teaching led me to ask our bank these two questions. Is preferential treatment for special groups of customers legitimate? And if so, where does such treatment become unfairly discriminatory against others? And because she left worship with the mind and the emotions, but bowed and bent the knee and went out and applied it in her life, she impacted the most equitable lending practice in the state of Ohio. Have you worshipped? Have you just shouted? Or have you just been quiet? Have you gone through the motions? Have you been slain in the spirit? But have you bended the knee? Have you bowed before the king who is the Lord above all little g-gods? Then that will be your true worship. That's the worship Jesus was talking to the woman at the well about that Lord, Pastor Lori started us in service with. When she was so worship confused, which many of us are, oh, you're from Jerusalem. You worship in the temple. We worship on the mountain. Our people speak in tongues. Our people don't talk to anybody, right? You know, it's just forms of religion. That's why Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. And Jesus said, there's a day coming when people will worship in spirit and in truth with all their mind with all their emotions, but oh my gosh, will they bend a knee? And will they let worship be a part of their practical life? And you want to say to me, how does this happen? What's the trigger? The psalmist tells us, if you read this psalm, he says a little word in English, for, F-O-R. It's a very small word in Hebrew too that means for, that means because. We oh come and sing aloud and weep and cry and share your music. Why? Because our God is great. Our God is a king. Oh, come and bow down and bend your knee. Why? 
because he's not just a great God, he's a shepherd God. He enters into relationship with us. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are his people. What's the psalmist doing? He's thinking, he's emoting, he's bending to the excellencies of God. He's taking an inventory. He's accounting. See, all you accountants think, well, I'm the boring type. I can't worship. You can help lead us. Teach us how to do spreadsheets of thinking of the majesty of God. Right? And as he does that, something explodes within him. And he begins to worship God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Have you done some accounting like that? (coughs) Excuse me. They asked Charles Spurgeon one time, how do you know Jesus is precious in your life? He said, when nothing else is. See, it's like if you um, inherited a family heirloom. Let's say there was a brooch, a piece of jewelry uh, from your great, 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 great grandmother, and it was passed down to generations, and you received it, and you treasure it because it's something valuable, but most of the time you don't know where it is, and you put it in a box somewhere, but one day you go, you know, I'm going to go get this appraised. I'm going to find out what's worse. And you go to the jeweler, and you know, the jeweler puts on his little piece of thing, and he begins to look at the cut and the, the way it reflects light and, and the, the, the texture and the color, and suddenly the jeweler's hand starts trembling, and suddenly his breath is labored. And he realizes that this is priceless. He realized that the cut of this jewel is something that, that the craftsmanship for which it was formed has no longer even is a, is a learned aspect that exists in the world. He realized that what he's holding in his hand is more valuable than all the jewels in his shop and all the jewels that has ever been in his shop. And when he tells the owner this, the owner realizes that they didn't even know what they possessed and that they weren't living in accordance with what they possessed. And suddenly everything's changed. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who dealt in fine pearls. But one day he went to the market and he saw a pearl of great price. And he sold everything he had and bought that pearl. And the early Puritans, you know what they used to say? Have you bought the pearl, laddie? Have you bought the pearl? It was their way of saying, have you accepted the treasure of Jesus Christ? Now, if you go to people in America and ask them, Pew Research does this all the time, Barna, Gallup, do you believe in God? Almost 92% say, yeah, we believe in God. Do, do you pray? 75%, yeah, we pray. Less than 20% go to church, are involved with any kind of regular worship or study or reflection. You know what's happened? They haven't bought the pearl. They got the brooch. They got in a box somewhere. And it has dust on it. But it hasn't ignited in their life. Buy the pearl. Do some accounting. Do some reflecting. I had this experience when I was a district superintendent before I came to Garfield 16 years ago. In our system, that meant I was overseeing 80 churches. 80 churches based out of Mansfield, Ohio. And I went down there and there were 18,000 Methodists, a little over, that made up these membership of these 80 churches. And do you know my wife was the first person of color of all those 18,000 Methodists. And we realized that we were, we had some wonderful churches, but that we were reaching some people, but not all people. How many know that, that the Great Commission did not say, go and make disciples of some people? It said what? Go and make disciples 
of all people. And I like to say, you know, I study the Greek language. Guess what all means in the Greek language? It means all, yeah, right? So we decided we need to plant new churches. And so we decided to plant a church in Mansfield that was going to be very diverse and very multi-ethnic and very uh, diverse economically. And we went into a, a, a lower-income urban area. We did youth outreach. And all of a sudden, we had like 200 people that wanted to be part of this new thing. And we were ready to plant this new church uh, for all people. In fact, we had a pastor picked out. And we said, look, we want this to be for all God's children. So he decided to call the church All God's Children, <laughs> United Methodist Church. And we needed $300,000 to launch this church to give us a three-year run at it. And that's where Pastor Scott and I met, and he was part of that team. He remembers this. And the denomination said, look, we'll give you half of that. We'll give you $150,000 if you guys can raise the under $150,000 in your district. And so we went to work, and we were thinking about it. It was early, and we had a strategy team meeting. We, we didn't want this to wait three or four years. We felt an urgency of now. We'd missed the moment for hundreds of years. We need to be in this kind of ministry. And the chair of that district strategy team was a man who said he actually found, gave his life to Jesus Christ during this moment. He'd been in church all his life, but it didn't energize him. It didn't trigger him. But this thing began to trigger him. I'll never forget, it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving when the denomination told us that. And we went out to lunch and we talked about, and we talked about how we're going to do this, how we're going to raise the money, how we're going to do it through our churches. And he was a man of some means. He wasn't uh, Jimmy Haslam of the Browns. He wasn't, you know, Mark Cuban. He was an optometrist. He had some practice. He had some real estate. He made some money. He wasn't filthy rich in any ways. But he said, you know, to me, he said, you know, I want to give to this. I want to be part of this. And he said to me, I'll never forget, he said, Chip, how do I figure out how much to give? And in one of those moments, the Holy Spirit gives you just the right words. Out of my mouth flowed, I said, Bob, not his real name. I said, Bob, give a gift that represents how good God has been in your life. He looked at me, he said, ouch. And we didn't talk very much, and we finished lunch, he went home. The next day was Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I was going to shut my office at noon, go to my mom's up in Youngstown, take the family, spend the night, be ready for Thanksgiving. I got into the office about 9.45. My office manager who had been there since 9 said, what happened to Bob? She said, he has called like five times to see if you're in, saying, I have to meet with Chip before he goes up to Youngstown. I called him. I said, what's up? He was talking as passionately as I do, and he's really a smart guy, even keeled, not like me, not a yellow, <laughs> right? And he said, we got to meet, we got to meet, we got to meet. And I met, met with him for coffee. I said, what's going on? He said, you know, when you said that to me, give a gift that represents how good God has been in my life. He said, I went home and I began to think about that. He said, I poured out a a legal pad. Now, I know all you millennials are going, that's like an iPad for attorneys? No, it's a little yellow thing with paper with lines on it. Okay, we're old. This was 98. And he's back there, and he took this legal pad, and he said, I began to write down how good God had been in my life. What was he doing? What the psalmist said. He was taking an inventory. He was accounting. He thought about his marriage of 35 years and how they've been so happily married and deeply in love. He thought about his children who had always been healthy and not suffered some of the tragedies that so many families suffer. He thought about his grandchildren who were all healthy and, and you know, doing well in their lives. He thought about the fact that God had given him an education. He could have born, born somewhere else or another place where that wasn't an option, but he was able to get an education, able to get a medical degree, able to do something with it to help people with their vision. And he realized that the Holy Spirit was helping him with his 
his vision. He said, I wrote all this down. And he said, here, I, he handed me an envelope. He said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And we prayed and prayed a prayer of Thanksgiving, and he left. I opened it, and in that envelope was a check for $150,000. Now, I don't know how, what percentage that was of his savings. I guarantee you it was more than 10%. And this isn't a shakedown sermon. This isn't a televangelist sermon. What it is, is you're going to listen to this and say, wow, that's a generous person. Yeah, he was, but he was worshiping. He was taking account of what God has done in his life, and he was bowing the knee. That's what worship is, friends. And, and I know you're thinking there saying, I don't know if I've ever worshiped. I get it. But plant that seed in your life. Regular worship. Because really it's on you right now. I think this pandemic has been actually something that would be very, very helpful in our faith. Don't squander it. Because the church was never supposed to be the producer of faith in your life. It's the Holy Spirit in you. In fact, the slogan of the church ought to be like Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. In fact, actually I'll change that. You can do it with God. And the church can water. We can just water. We can help you water. We can teach you to water. Make regular worship a part of your life. Okay. Let me say this to you. Why? Why then? Why then do we worship? You know, does God have a big ego? Does he need big stadiums full of people shouting God's name? No, Jesus said, get rid of that. He said in Mark chapter 2, he said, the Sabbath wasn't made for you. You know? You were, I'm sorry, he said, you weren't made for the Sabbath. In other words, you weren't made to, you know, God has this big ego. The Sabbath was a gift. It was for you. You need this. And you say, well, why do I need to worship? Here's why. Listen to this. Because you're already worshiping something. When I'm dealing with the unchurched folks and my friends and people in this community, when I'm sharing Christ, and they go, well, you know, I'm not religious. I don't really worship. You know what I say? Liar. Because we all worship something. We all ascribe ultimate value to something. But what the psalmist is saying, be careful that you don't put that ultimate value in something that can't heal you when you're sick, forgive you when you're hurt, and raise you when you're dead. Jesus said, don't store up your treasure on earthly things where the moth can eat it up, where the rust can take it down, or where the thieves can steal even your very life. But store up your treasure in heaven because where your ultimate value is, your treasure, what? Your heart will be also. See, your heart is already somewhere, and mine is somewhere, and so many times we can redirect it into things. That's why the number one sin of the Old Testament was idolatry. And whenever you hear preachers talking about idolatry, you think about Ouija boards and witchcraft and pornography, and it's not that. Idolatry is not putting your faith in bad things. What it is is taking great things. Your career, your family, your children, your marriage, your relationships, your, your heart to serve, and making that your ultimate thing. The psalmist is saying when we come into worship, we're transferring the value we've placed on the little gods. That's why it says when he's the king over all gods, we think, oh, that's back because they had gods of sun and gods of... No, it's for us today. We make so many things our little g-gods. And when I come to worship regularly, when I begin my week, not end my week in worship, I go before God, I sing the praises, and I think about where have I placed my value, God? Have I bought the pearl or have I sold out to something else in my life? Have I shifted my value? 
in an unhealthy way to my marriage. And my marriage is so important to me. You guys know I'm married to my best friend. But for her and for I, the ultimate value has to be in God. And when that's proportionately that way, then we can effectively and healthily love each other unconditionally. But if we misplace that, it will distort us. It will twist us. And that's why I had the privilege to study under Dr. Gardner C. Taylor. We lost two icons of the civil rights movement this past weekend. And Dr. Taylor, my mentor, was one of those two. And he died in 2015 on Easter Sunday. If anybody deserved to go home on Easter, it was Dr. Taylor. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, never forget, worship is the place and the time where we take the gods that we have created before the God who has created us and leave those gods there to die. What demons and dragons and other things have we transferred our allegiance to that today in the hearing of his voice, the Bible says he utters his voice, the earth melts. What gods, little G, do you need to bring in here today before God in your home? What little G God has taken possession of your living room, of your home, that we need to leave at the altar of the Almighty God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and leave that there to die. What is worship? It's giving the emotions. It's giving the thinking, and it's bending the knee of the will. It's allowing that to affect your life. Don't you dare come in and sing how great thou art, and then go out in the world and hate your neighbor. The Bible says, how can you say that you love God who you don't see and hate your neighbor that you do? See, we need to learn to praise God, to worship, but then to continue in that spirit of worship as we bow and as we kneel before the living God. Because if you're not doing that, you've fashioned a God in your own image. See, and that's, that's, that's a power thing. Why did the psalmist say, oh, God is a shepherd? God is in relation. Why, why did he say that? Was he just kind of like, well, I like to think about God like this. That's what we do today. People tell me, well, I like to think about God. No, bow down before the real God, because if you have a God that you like to think about, you have a cardboard God that is not a living God. He will never disagree with you, will never contradict you, will never challenge you, will never push you, and then you can't even be in a community because you have a God all by yourself. Lean up, the psalmist says. Come into the presence of the one true God, the great shepherd who gave his life as a ransom for many. And when you do that, like Sandra Haram did. Oh, she changed a lending institution. Who knows what you might change in your life, in your home, through this church, through your own personal witness. I love what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, reflecting on who God's is, to offer your entire selves, right? Not just a song, not just a prayer, but everything. All that you are, your entire selves, as a what? A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true worship. 
Have you worshipped yet? Put these words into action. I'm going to work harder at it. Not work in an oppressive way. I don't want worship to be one more work that we do. It's freeing. He who the Son of Man has set free is freed indeed. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. Now we can just account it and take inventory and reflect on it and let that explode in your life. I'm praying for worshipers in spirit and in truth all day long, every day of the week, until our dying breath, until we come to that great church of Revelation 7-9 where all, every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, and we say at Garfield, we might as well practice that now, will give praise to God. That's the trajectory. Start now and let it yield a harvest in your life. In the name of Jesus, let all God's people say, amen.